Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. We are a podcast that is dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. We thank you for joining us as we explore, discuss, and seek to grow as as followers of Christ. And so today, we have a, a slightly different structure to our podcast from the way that we normally do things. Uh, Lucas has a topic that he apparently is itching to share pretty badly. He, he was telling oh, yeah. me that uh, he was sitting in church the other day, and this it was just sort of like a side... I'll, I'll let him explain it all, but he was saying how he's super excited to share all this, and um, so I guess Lucas will do a, a large portion of, of the talking, um, though I'm sure there'll be times where I'll interject in times where you'll have you know, maybe questions for me. Um, but I think that we'll just jump right into it. So Lucas, would you like to share what is on your mind? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, yeah, super stoked, super excited to, to talk about this. It was quite a, um, an unexpected little like journey I went on this past Sunday. Um, so a little bit, I mean, I guess I can sort of give the you know, the title to my mini paper here, but, um, we're going to be looking at, uh, Mount Zion sort of as a, as a theme, we're going to be kind of tracing it through scripture. Um, and I have a very specific place that I'm going to end up, um, in terms of both within scripture, but, but more importantly, um, a, you know, I don't know how to put it, like, um, looking at where, Mount Zion points us to, I guess, um, where, where the scriptures that talk about Mount Zion are pointing us somewhere that I've never noticed before and never really heard before, but I think is very specific, very uh, even explicit in the text of scripture. And also, um, you know, dare I say revolutionary for how we understand, <laughs> uh, you know, our not our faith, but our place and, and, mm. and how we live out our faith as the church. Um, so, you know, a little ambitious, but, um, before we get into it, a, a little background, um, at, at church, my pastor's preaching, he's preaching through the section of Luke. I think it's like the end of chapter nine through chapter like 19 or something. It's, uh, the the title is uh, Journey to Jerusalem, and so it's it's that section of Luke in the middle-ish where um, Jesus is uh, heading to Jerusalem for the final time where he'll end up being betrayed and crucified. Um, hmm. And so working with that kind of framework where all of these parables and teachings and stories that are happening um, are, are during his and his disciples' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, um, my pastor's constantly calling us back to that. And, and, and something that he's been mentioning is the difference between the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. And he's pointed out instances where um, Jesus is reorienting people's perspective to away from the earthly Jerusalem towards the heavenly Jerusalem, or Jesus is sort of, uh, you know, being an example of what it means to have your perspective on the heavenly Jerusalem as opposed to the earthly Jerusalem. Um, so in the process of, uh, you know, preaching his sermon, he mentioned, um, he, he mentioned this idea of uh, heavenly Jerusalem versus earthly Jerusalem. And 
if I can just find my place, what what he said was um, a reference to Hebrews twelve twenty two, um, which says, "But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly t- Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in in heaven, and to God, the Judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect." and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So um, what caught Dang. my... Well, yeah, I know, a mouthful, but um, <laughs> we can just break it down a little bit. Um, so uh, what caught my eye was that the author of Hebrews is saying, you have come to Mount Zion. So that caught my eye. And then he goes on and he explains that that is to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So I'm going to put that verse in its context and explore it a little bit later. But just to, you know, that caught my eye, this connection between Mount Zion and church um, Hmm. as something that I, like I said, I've never really heard before and I never noticed before. Um, And, you know, since I'm a good Moody Bible Institute, uh, you know, graduate, um, I know that... That he, that, um, you know, when I, in high school, when I got accepted to Moody, my mom bought me uh, a sweatshirt uh, that said Moody in really big Mm -hmm. letters and then in smaller letters, Bible Institute underneath it. Um, So everyone used to make fun of me for the, I I wore it all the time because it was like really comfy and I was excited that I was, you know, that's where I was going to school and everyone was like, wow, you're so Moody. That, well, that's so. funny because when, when when we graduated from Moody, I bought a, um, I wanted to get something to commemorate my time there, so I I, I bought a hat, and it's it's a red it's a red hat, and it also has Moody in big letters, and it says Bible Institute. But mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times people have done a double take, thinking <laughs> that it was like a Make America Great Again hat, because um, oh, it's like man. almost the same color, and it has like a, you know a big M. Right. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that's kind of funny. But anyway, oof. Uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll leave that we'll leave that there <laughs> and um, keep on rolling <laughs> but anyway so you know i'm i know that you know hebrews is all about it's just steeped in old testament imagery and references to the old testament law and and the old testament uh you know sacrifices and all that kind of stuff so it, it's not really surprising that you there'd be a reference to mount zion but but like i said what i didn't notice was this reference to mount zion is being connected to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, whoa, that's wild. So I made a note to remember to like, you know, when I got home after church to like look into sort of exploring a little more what, what that's all about. And that's what led to me diving into this topic, um, which I've never really been that specifically interested in before. um, And I've never really spent time exploring. So I was, really excited with what I had found and I, you know, texted Jensen. I was like, dude, we gotta, we gotta, I gotta talk about this, um, you know, on air. So let's sort of start from more or less the beginning. Um, so what is not necessarily Mount Zion, but just Zion, uh, in, in particular. So in, in second Samuel five, seven, and I'm going to be jumping really quick all over the place. Um, I'm going to try and, you know, sort of 
explain what the context of the important verses are, but I'm also going to be skipping over a lot of context, not because I don't think it's important, but because I'm trying to hit just some highlights to sort of get an idea of, of generally speaking, what it is that um, the Old Testament and then into the New is telling us about Zion. So 2 Samuel 5, 7 says, Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So the city of David, which is Jerusalem, is the, the you know, we could call it Zion City. It's the, it's the city of Zion. And what do we know about Jerusalem? It eventually was the center of Israel's worship, not just their political life where the king lived, but it was also the center of their religious life, um, especially, especially once uh, Solomon built the temple. Um, so Zion is Jerusalem, city of David. So we kind of have just right off the bat by describing the city of David as Zion, we know that if if someone's talking about Zion, if, if a Hebrew is going to be talking about Zion or the Bible is going to talk about Zion, it's pretty important. We know David is, is the most significant king. We know that Jerusalem is, is the center of, of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And clearly that makes Zion an important term. And, and that's just another term for Jerusalem or the city of David. Um, and closely connected to, you know, like I said, Zion City is Zion Mountain or Mount Zion. Um, and what's what's interesting is they're not exactly the same. Like Zion the city doesn't equal Mount Zion, if that makes sense, but they're 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 really intertwined with each other. Um, we, I, the way I think of it is like Mount Zion is kind of bigger than just Zion the city. And I don't just mean like a mountain is bigger than a city, but I mean in terms of its significance. Um, and what we see about the significance of Mount Zion is that it has really profound eschatological significance and things to say and point what does to that word mean? about, thank you, about the end times, about the culmination of all things. So when, you, when we hear eschatology, we're talking about, you know, the end time. So, you know. I guess an example would be Left Behind, the book series. Uh, you know, <laughs> speaking of Moody. Speaking of Moody. Uh, would, would be an example of like really, really, I'm not going to say it, really, really sort of, it, I mean, it's fiction. It's not like it's supposed to be mm. real. But like the point is like it, it the, that sort of topic of what happens when Jesus comes back, what happens in the end times, the book of Revelation, and, and also second half of Daniel and, and other things, you know, Ezekiel, like these books in the Bible that teach us about the future. And when I say future, I mean specifically the end of time when, when, when uh, we have the new heavens and the new earth, that's eschatology. So eschatologically in the, as far as the, the, the end times, Mount Zion is really significant. Um, and what I mean by that is, so in second Kings 1931, God, uh, through Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking to King Hezekiah as Israel is facing the invasion of the Assyrians. And God says, for out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Um, And the prophets also speak of future times when the Lord will dwell on Mount Zion we see that in Isaiah 4, 5, and also Isaiah 8, 18. Um, they also talk about God reigning on Mount Zion. We see that in Isaiah 24, 23, 
Joel 2.32, and Micah 4.7. Um, and this one was also really interesting to me. Um, in Obadiah 1.21, um, he talks about the people of God on Mount Zion judging the enemies of God. Hmm. Um, and what, you know, we, I don't, I didn't get into that. I, you know, that's a topic for another day, I'm sure. But the point is that that's happening on Mount Zion. The, all of these things, these future, you know, looking ahead, um, to, uh, these events that are either God is doing or the people of God are doing, they're all centered on Mount Zion. So in summary, eschatologically, the Old Testament points forward to a time when the kingdom of God is fulfilled and established on Mount Zion. You have his God living there, reigning there, um, his judgment going forth uh, on his enemies through his people. Um, And this is all, future this is this isn't something that has happened yet if that makes Mm. sense um and all throughout the psalms um we'll we'll see a little bit later i think um maybe i didn't uh make note of it but all throughout the psalms we 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 see and we hear um this longing for mount zion this law you know um the psalms of ascent which would be said as as an israelite was on pilgrimage to the temple in jerusalem there, there, there are all these songs throughout Scripture where, um, and especially in the Psalms, we the people of God are yearning for that time when the kingdom of God will be fully revealed, and this is this especially is true after the exile when the people of God are separated from Zion, separated from Mount Zion, separated from the temple. They can't worship God the way that they're supposed to, the way that they're used to, the way that they long to. And so there's this longing of a return to Mount Zion where, um, you know, justice will be done. The, the, you know, Babylon will be, will be judged for its sin and, you know, the, the, the exiles will return and, and, and they'll be fulfilled as, as the kingdom of God is reestablished or, or fully established on Mount Zion. Um, so jumping ahead a little bit <laughs> to uh, Revelation, <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's skipping a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, that, you know, I, there's a method to my madness. But so in Revelation oh, okay. 14.1, um, Christ is actually connected with Mount Zion. Um, so Revelation 14.1, then I looked and behold, the lamb who we know from earlier in the book is Christ, the lamb who was slain. Um, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So we have Christ and the people who has his, who have his name and the name of God written on their foreheads. So the people who are, you know, his people, whatever that means or whatever that looks like. Um, where is this happening? The lamb is standing on Mount Zion, which is pretty interesting. And he doesn't say standing in Jerusalem. He doesn't say, you know, standing on the mountain. He says standing on Mount Zion. Um, and, Side note: I'm using the NASB, um, the the gold standard for word for word translation. Shout out Doc and Devo, but um, oh, yeah. uh, so you know maybe uh, other translations might word things slightly differently, but if so, that that's why. Just um, NASB is what I'm using. So what I've got as far as this 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 tracing this theme of Mount Zion through through Scripture so far, we have. Mount Zion either representing or being um, the city of David, 
the city of God, the kingdom of God, and it's also connected to Christ himself. Um, so the city of God, city of David, kingdom of God, and Christ himself, they're all associated with or identified with, really closely linked to Mount Zion. Um, so I'm about to get back to Hebrews 12. Is, is there anything you feel like I've glossed over or that you feel like I should maybe expand on a little bit? It, I think I'll just say, um, because we didn't in the beginning, is that this is um, a good example of the discipline called biblical theology. Um, mm. You know, we could probably go into great depths on this, you know, plumbing scripture, Definitely. finding every single instance in which this idea occurs. But, you know, a couple, episode, a couple episodes ago, when we talked about theology in general, we touched on how that wasn't about you know, systematic theology wasn't about historical theology, wasn't about, it wasn't about biblical theology. Um, But this is a discipline, a, you know, under the umbrella of theology proper is this idea of biblical theology, where you take either a theme or a name or um, something that occurs. And we look at how does this develop? How does it grow? How does it change throughout the arc of scripture? So, you know, you could, you could do a biblical theology of um, you know, the church, you can do a biblical theology of the people of God. Uh, when we were at Moody, I did a biblical theology of water. Um, so like, how does, how does water play into, um, you know, the biblical story? So I think that it's helpful to sort of keep that in mind as we go forward, that what we're doing here in this episode with the idea of Mount Zion is we're looking at its biblical theology. So it, you know, because to the old Testament believer, to the one who would have been uh, you know, a, a Hebrew worshiping Yahweh in the temple. The idea of Mount Zion is different, as we're going to see from, you know, the author of Hebrews. It's not that it has changed, but it's that it's probably become fulfilled. What Mount Zion was, um, you know, I don't you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, yeah, it's all, exactly. It's all connected. Yeah. And I think that's, that's super helpful um, and really, you know, a, a good reminder of of just sort of fleshing out ways that we do theology ways that we you know talk about the revelation of reality like we talked about in that early episode um mm. and i think something else you said that really stuck out to me was was you know mount zion being fulfilled not so much changed or um you know uh something new being right. associated with mount zion and and that'll that'll sort of come up come up later yeah. too and but I think it's important I- to keep in mind i think Right, because I think sometimes we like to um, like bifurcate the Old Testament from the New as though because the New Testament and the New Covenant have come that the Old Testament is somehow obsolete or um, unimportant or irrelevant. And I can see why someone might say that, but when we understand, you know, our, our, our podcast, like our imagery that we always sort of harken back to is, you know, that Emmaus Road, the disciples walking with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's on that road where Jesus was looking at all of the Old Testament, you know, Moses and the prophets, which is how he would have, that's how they talked about the Old Testament um, in the Bible. And he was like, this is where I, you know, this is me in this text. You know, I'm not, the name Jesus isn't there, um, but, you know, Mount Zion, uh, the garden, you know, whatever it is, all these things have their fulfillment in the new, not their replacement. So I think, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's good to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, So, 
we've sort of established what Mount Zion is. Um, and this is where I want to get back to Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. Um, and this, this is what caught my attention, and this is what really, since I spent a little bit of time looking at it, really, really blew my mind and is continuing to, to blow my mind. So we know what Mount Zion is. It's the city of God. It, it represents the kingdom of God. Um, and, and we see in the future of Revelation, there's this association with Christ. Um, in Hebrews 12, we're told something new, or, you know, new as in it's not talked about yet, um, something different, something else that's really pretty amazing about the identity of Mount Zion. So the, be- the, the first bit of chapter 12 um, is this exhortation for the Hebrews to endure persecution and tribulation. Um, they're, they're being reminded um, about how God, you know, if they're receiving discipline from God, that that's, they should be encouraged by that because that's something that, you know, God only does for his children. Um, and if, if a parent doesn't discipline their child, then that child is illegitimate. So that's around verse eight. Um, he also says that that discipline is, is meant for their good and for their sanctification in verse 10. Um, and they should be encouraged by that. And then out of that strive for, for holy living in, in verses 12 through 17. So then in 18, there's sort of this transition, you know, based, based on all that, um, where the author tells the Hebrews that they have not come to Mount Sinai. And he doesn't say Mount Sinai, but he talks about the burning mountain with fear that the, the, uh, uh, the animals couldn't even touch and that that Moses was even afraid of it. So we know that's Mount Sinai because that's just hearkening back to um, to, to Exodus. Um, and then we get to, to verses 22 to 24, which I read in the beginning. I'm going to read again. So you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So again, that's a mouthful, lots of things, but um, what I don't want, what I want to highlight, what this whole topic, you know, is, is about, is that we have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the church. So everything we've talked about Mount Zion in the the Old Testament, Revelation, um, the church, as in the Christian church, the the ecclesia, the the body of Christ, the church is Mount Zion. So the holy city of David, where God dwells, where he reigns from, the prophets looking forward, talked about how the kingdom of God forever is going to be on Mount Zion, that is, what what that is, is, is the people of God redeemed in Christ, aka the church. Um, and that's a very simple statement, but I think it's, like I said, dare I say revolutionary, it's... And there's massive implications for it, sure. It has massive implications because what are we... What are we doing? What are we talking about when we when we read Isaiah and he's talking about Mount Zion? We're talking about ultimately the church. And what does that mean? That means that, as we'll see, we are 
we are we are in we are on we are mount mount zion now and i'll flesh that out a little bit later um but that might seem you know particularly depending on the the specific you know theological tradition you come from um that might seem a little iffy or that might seem a little you know out there or a little confusing um but i think that identifying the kingdom you know the, the the holy mountain of god with the church makes a lot of sense when we think about the fact that the church is the people of god um and this idea of, of the people of god is something else that it, it, scripture talks about a lot all through old and new testaments originally um in the beginning of, of Israel's history, when God appears to Abraham, he, he's calling Abraham out. Um, and then through his descendants, um, he, he's, he's taking Israel as a nation and sort of, can, you know, he's making them a nation by calling them out. And then he's, he's marking them off from all the other nations as being his own possession. So in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, this is right after um, the Exodus, um, God through Moses tells the whole uh, congregation of, of Israel. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the people of God, Israel, are called into a covenant with him in order to be holy and to be priests to God. Okay, what does that have to do with the church? Well, the church is identified with the same these same, you know, characteristics. In Revelation 1.6, John is writing his, his sort of introduction to his seven letters to the churches. And he says, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So those who have been redeemed or released from our sins by the blood of Christ, the church, believers, are made into a kingdom and priests to God. Again, in Revelation 5.10, um, when the lamb takes the book with the seven seals, the elders and um, the creatures, the four living creatures, they they sing a song to the lamb. Um, in verse 9, they, they talk about uh, how he has bought or, or redeemed people, men from all nation, from every tribe. And then in verse 10 of, of chapter 5, it says, you have made them, the, the men from every tribe, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Um, and then the more famous verse where this really is, you know, I think cl- most clearly uh, evident is 1 Peter 2.9. Um, remember, Peter, he's writing in his epistle, he's writing to believers. Um, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And I'll, I'll stop right there. Um, the rest of the verse is important, but for now, um, a people for God's own possession, priesthood, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are all the exact same terms that God used to describe Israel. And why? Because they were the people of God chosen by grace for God's purposes and for their good. And in the same way, what is the church? It's the people of God. And we know that it's the people of God because it's described as a people for God's own possession with these same characteristics, chosen, a priesthood, a holy nation. Um, 
And these are all Old Testament ideas that are applied to Israel being applied to the church all over the New Testament. Fulfilled in the church. I mean, to go back to what we were saying a second ago. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, And that is, I mean, huge, (laughs) obviously. Um, and, And so if we are called to these things, um, one of the things that I think is really, really important is this idea that we are a royal priesthood. Um, and I want to ask the question, what does a priest do? And the answer... Slaughters animals. The, okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> so how would you answer that question if you had to give sort of like a, you know, a quick definition? What, what does a priest do? What is it? In the Old Testament? Uh, in the Old Testament... Or are you talking... Or Are you in talking general. about like a Catholic priest, um, sort of more more broadly than just Catholic priest, um, but like when we think of when we think of the word priest, so so Old Testament, mm-hmm. you know, ancient Hebrew Israelite priest is is definitely sort of the framework that the Bible is right. working with, obviously. Um, but you, so you I, I mean, you can talk about Catholic, you know, other uh, you know other religions or or whatever as well. Like just sort of the word priest, what is that? indicate yeah so the priests in the old testament and i i, I have a, a good um bible answer because i actually preached through hebrews um to the youth group that i led um before oh, i left like i literally yeah, yeah. preached through all of hebrews and this nice. idea of priest and mm. you know the old covenant these things come up over and over and over again because like you said earlier right. uh the author of hebrews who i think is apollos i don't you know i don't know for sure i know it's not paul at least um i know that much uh-huh. Um, he was very. Is it? Um, is it? Very, is it Junius? I don't know. I, I guess that I think it's Apollos, and you know he was very um, wise and gifted in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and um, was able to apply all of those fulfilling things um, into the New Testament and the New Covenant. And so, when we think of this idea of of priest, what is a, a priest? Um, well, in the Old Covenant, the priest was sort of like the the go-between uh, of man and God um, because before Christ, before his atoning work on the cross, um, there was no way for the people to have communion, to have fellowship, to even go into God's presence. And even the high priest, like, so even, even the high priest could only enter into God's presence one time every year but that was like only after doing all these crazy rituals and cleansings and um, purifications so that he could even go into the Holy of Holies. And even when he went in, he had like a rope tied around himself so that if something happened, um, you know, if he died before the presence of God, um, you know, if, if the if this rope with bells on it stopped jingling, the people could pull him back out because they couldn't go in lest they perish. Right. Um, but this idea of, of high priest, of a, of a, a priest, uh, as being somebody who is sort of a um, a spokesman, both from the people to God, but also God to the people. Right. Um, so when you think of Moses, when you think of Aaron, when you think of any of the other uh, priests of the Old Testament, they would go into God's presence. He would give them, you know, um, you know, the Old Covenant, for example. Like Moses went up onto the mountain, received the Ten Commandments and the Law gave it to the people. And then there were times where the people would groan and complain and gripe. And Moses would sort of like take those things before Yahweh. Right. Um, So I guess that's like the the easiest, most basic answer to what a priest is. And that's why for Jesus as, as our great high priest, 
he in himself being man and God, right. uh, fully man, fully God, is that great high priest who is able to um, both both sympathize um, with us, but also to to be God. So to um, to expiate, to forgive, to um, you know atone for sin, and so. Yeah, I guess that is that kind of what you're looking for. Yeah, and I mean that's that's basically the the exact same answer that that I was going to give. You know, in in you know sort of a nutshell, the the core elements of of what it means to be a priest is to represent, you know, the people or, or people before God, and then to represent God before the people. Um, so I want to bring in someone who I love reading. Um, I know that you've also enjoyed. Uh, his work as well. Um, the the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox liturgical theologian Alexander oh, Alexander Schmemann. Um, so I'm reading through his book um, called The Eucharist: Sac- Sacrament of the Kingdom, um, and I came across a couple of of little sections here that I think are really relevant for this discussion. Um, so mm-hmm. in the edition I have from Saint Vladimir Seminary Press. This is on page ninety. Um, The point is, being the new people of God, gathered, redeemed, and sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ, the church is consecrated by him, Christ, for witness about him in the world and before the world. So, coming to God, we are, as the church, the new people of God. Um, As 1 Peter 2.9 says, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Um, We are gathered, redeemed, and sanctified, as Schreman says. We are set apart as this this royal priesthood, this holy nation. Um, and what that is meant for is to be a witness about him, not only in the world as we gather and, and, and worship um, and, and fellowship, but also before the world as we go out and fulfill the Great Commission. And this just resonates with the middle part of 1 Peter 2.9, um, we're a chosen race, da, 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 so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The point of being gathered together as the people of God, it doesn't end there. It goes out into our mission, our proclamation, preaching the gospel, making disciples. Um, then later down on the page, Schmemann says, in every liturgy, she, the church, meets the coming Lord and has the fullness of the kingdom which is coming in power. In her, everyone who hungers and thirsts is granted. Here, on this earth, in this age, the contemplation of the imperishable light of Tabor, the possession of perfect joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. You know, it's Russian Orthodox. It's very grand. But the church in worship experiences the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus says in Luke 17, 21, that the kingdom of God is within you. He's talking to the Pharisees. They're looking for these signs of the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is within you. And note that Shmeiman says, the fullness of the kingdom, the abundant life, you know, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. That life, the eternal life that Jesus came to give us is life in the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? It's Mount Zion. So this is where it's starting to tie back together. Hopefully, I'm I'm being clear. Um, so we don't just get to experience that life, which is, you know, <laughs> an unsearchable mystery and blessing. 
but we're called to bear witness about that life, about that kingdom of God to the world. The fullness of life that we get to experience, as Schmemann says in every liturgy, um, is that responsibility we have to proclaim that um, kingdom to the world. Um, the inward truth of Israel's identity as a chosen nation, that's sort of the external fact that that's what they were, but the, the what they were meant to do with that was to bless all the families of the world. That's what God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, when he first promises him that he's going to be the father of, of a great nation. And the church, in the same way, again, 1 Peter 2, 9, is made a holy nation so that we can proclaim his excellencies. So we have all of these, you know. Are you going to tie this? Sorry, excuse me. Are you going to tie this in to the priesthood of believers? I'm just kind of curious. I might be jumping the gun for you. No, yeah. I think that's an idea that that's I think it's it's sort of implicit. Um, but I think you're right. It's it's better to to, to bring it out a little more explicitly. Um, so obviously, depending on, you know, who you are, um, priest isn't something that people in, uh, you know, Protestants, evangelicals necessarily um, think of as as an office that is really still used. We know Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, um, and, and some Protestants like like me with, with you know, I want to be an Anglican priest. I Like, it, it, there's differences, but the reason that priesthood is really important is that it's not a certain class of people that get to go before God and represent God to the people. Um, and we see this even in, in, in Israel. Israel is called a nation of priests. Um, even back then when they very explicitly had the office of, of, of priests and the Levites. But in a similar way, the church, uh, with Christ as our great high priest, we, everybody, not a select class of super Christians or the really special ones or anything like that, but we as the church Catholic, the entire church, the universal church, we participate in that priesthood of Christ. And what's, what's, I've always, you know, that's, that comes out in Hebrews as we hear about Christ's great high priesthood that, that through him where, you know, he represents us before the father, we're able to draw near to the throne of grace. Like I kind of, I get all that, but what, but Schmemann's work, especially his book for the life of the world, which I would really recommend as a starting place. I wouldn't end there with your journey through Schmemann, but, um, it's a really accessible and and impactful, relatively short work that I would start with. Um, that was really what hammered at home for me is is the way he talks about how what the church is doing is offering before God a sacrifice. You know, in the Anglican liturgy, the Eucharistic liturgy, we talk about a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Um, and Paul in Romans twelve talks about presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. Um, and that's sort of what we do to God, but, but again, so that we proclaim his excellencies so that we will Mm. bless, you know, Israel will bless all the families of the world. And that's what we're doing as the church is Christ is a great high priest and we're his body. (laughs) So the work of Christ's priesthood is the work of the church in fulfilling the great commission in proper worship in the fellowship of believers, everything that the church does um, and everything that the church is as well. Um, And 
each believer is a is a part of the church and each believer participates in that priesthood um and, and that's where the you know the, the idea of the priesthood of all believers that's that's what that means it's that it that doesn't just apply to the clergy that doesn't just apply to the leaders of the church but that's what the calling and the privilege and the blessing that all christians participate in um i don't know if there's, if there's more you'd want to add no that's good um, yeah. but yeah so another connection i wanted to draw uh between church you know future mount zion is uh we have the marriage supper of the lamb in the book of revelation and weekly or monthly or whatever uh in church gatherings we have the lord's supper and it's interesting that you know i'm trying to make the case that the eschatological kingdom of god is fulfilled and realized in the church and it's interesting that we see in that future eschatological reality of revelation a supper and in the the present reality of the church we see a supper um and we get to participate you know or what i should say is as we participate in the new kingdom of god here on earth by being members of the church we also participate in the heavenly meal that we read about when we commune with christ and each other in his body and blood through the lord's supper um and we also the way that this 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 idea of supper um this 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 connection um of church and kingdom of God with, with the supper is we see it a lot in Jesus's parables um, because he, he multiple times, he, he talks about marriage suppers in parables, marriage banquets um, as he's teaching about the kingdom of God. Um, so as he's pointing forward to the kingdom, he's talking about a marriage feast. And that is a real thing that comes to fruition in the book of revelation. Um, and, you know, it's not just a symbol in, in the sense of of just a, a story because in when he institutes the Lord's Supper, Jesus talks about not eating or drinking um, again until he will eat and drink new in his Father's kingdom in Matthew 26, 29. Um, and so the, the, the connection of feasting, of, of a banquet, of a supper with the future glory of eternity is something that's peppered all throughout the gospels. It's in the book of revelation. And it really is an important link that I think the new Testament is teaching us. Um, so as I talk about all this stuff about marriage suppers, about priesthood, about, um, the church being Mount Zion, um, a question that came into my head, and I don't know if, if you gens are thinking about it or if any of the listeners are thinking about it, but, um, something that I wanted to address was was the question that you might be having of, does this mean that we're flattening down the kingdom of God's future fulfillment into just the present day? If that makes sense, are, are, are we are we sort of snipping off the book of Revelation and just saying all the prophecies about Mount Zion, everything Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God, we've seen it all. You know, it's 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 done here here and because we have the church um and i can see you know like that might be sort of something that you might think that's what i'm trying to do 
um, with everything I've been saying, because I am saying that all the stuff that scripture teaches us about the kingdom of God is pointing directly to the church. And that's what we're supposed to take away from it. That is what I'm saying. But, but that doesn't mean that I'm flattening down the eschatology into just the present church. Um, I'm not trying to ignore that future glory of eternity that has yet to be fully revealed. Um, what I'm trying to say is that eternal life starts now. It doesn't end now, but it starts now. The quality of life in Christ is such that even as we are still marred by sin and we struggle against the powers and principalities of this, of this age while the God of this world exercises his power, even as we're facing trials and tribulations and we experience suffering or we see suffering in the world around us, even as we fall short as a church and as individuals of our calling, we hurt those around us, we let God down, we, we betray you know, the, the, the reality that, that we are new creations in Christ, um, we are still participating in heaven. Not because heaven is merely life on this earth, but because in the church, we are getting a foretaste of glory divine, as the, that you know, classic song says. Um, we're already living in the kingdom of God because he has made us into a holy nation that we didn't used to be. He gave us mercy that we didn't used to have. Um, of a holy nation of royal priests for his glory and our eternal benefit, as well as the eternal benefit of the world. Um, and so, you know, what I kind of want to finish with is that the church isn't a part of, it doesn't represent, it is the already part of the already not yet when we're talking about the kingdom of God, um, specifically when we're talking about Mount Zion. Everything that we see in the prophecies and in the, in the the um, allusions to Mount Zion and the kingdom of God in the Old Testament um, and in Revelation. Um, that is the church. That's not the whole picture. The church, as we see in all her brokenness and, and imperfections on earth, isn't the end of the story. The end of the story is the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, and the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Um, you know, the, the end of the story is eternity in the future. Um, but we aren't divorced from that eschatological fulfillment. There's this, this idea of, of this already not yet kind of thing. You know, Jesus, before he's even crucified, talks about repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there is a sense in which the kingdom of God wasn't there yet because it's not heaven, but the kingdom of God had arrived. There's already not yet tension that is so prevalent in all aspects of our faith. And I, I want to say, I want to submit that the church is the already part of the already not yet um, around the kingdom of God. Um, the church participates in that future final eschatological fulfillment and is thus a present eschatological fulfillment of what the kingdom of God or the kingdom that is established on Mount Zion really is. Um, and that's what I have been just, you know, steeped in for the last few days um, and really excited to share. Um, and I hope that I was able to do a good job explaining everything that I wanted to communicate. <laughs> um, and I also hope that this is something that excites others as much as it excites me. Um, and 
and and yeah I, I hope that this is something that i can continue to ponder on and we can continue to ponder on it and and discuss um sort of what it means so yeah i think yeah sort of like as you as we wrap it up um it's really helpful i think a large you know I, i'll just say it's really helpful all the time like whether we're hearing sermons whether we're um you know, reading the Bible, whether we're reading theology books or talking about, you know, biblical theology, whatever it is, um, to sort of bring it to that, um, like how it works. Meaning, you know, we can talk about grand ideas. We can talk about um, the church being Mount Zion. We can talk about, you know, descending to the dead. Um, But if we talk about it just in like abstract ways without like how this is actually applicable um, and real to life, um, then we're sort of doing a disservice to it because we don't we don't do theology we don't talk about God's word um, merely to have intele- intellectual ideas fill our head um, but we want it to change not only the way we live but change our um, our affections our desires and so like with this idea of, of Mount Zion um, sort of parsing out what it means from, you know, the biblical framework, starting in the Old Testament, moving on into the new. Uh, I think, you know, what you said about this reality of it being some of that already, not yet. Like we are, I think something that we take for granted as Christians in the new covenant is some, I, I think we take for granted some of the realities that weren't available to the old covenant believers like so for an old covenant um just common person living in israel they did not have access to god in in the same way that we do like through jesus through his uh the work of you know dying upon the cross as a mediator for sins you know we we are granted access to the throne room of grace and we can commune with him we can um you know present our wants and desires and you know confess him to the world um and so like that, like we've, like we've sort of been saying throughout this episode of, uh, of the church sort of being the fulfillment of a lot of these Old Testament and Old Covenant realities, we are now living in a day and an age in which, I mean, to say we have access to God, you know, like, like I said, some people might be like, yeah, of course, yeah, we can pray, we can talk to him, we have his word. Um, but we don't understand the implications of that. So right. I think it's, as, we, it's more, as we sort of... It's more immediate than it sometimes right. feels. It's, it's, right. It's closer. So it's, yeah. Right. So to be that Mount Zion, to be those that, you know, the priesthood of all believers, I think is um, a great thought to ponder as you consider how you even live your day-to-day life. You know, because if we if we are a priesthood, if we have responsibilities, if we have... Um, things that we do as believers, it, it's going to change the way that you function at work. It changes the way that you, um, you know, maybe spend your free time. It changes the way that you just interact with people in the world. So I think that's really, really cool to uh, to talk about. So, I mean, did you have anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap it up? No, I mean, I just kind of want to, I guess, re- you know, reiterate the just the idea that like, the reason I got so hyped about this topic is because it it changes it it changes, you know, not just my intellectual theological, you know, positions or whatever, but it changes what it means to be a member of the church. It changes what it means when I look at 
worship as the church, as the body, when I look at my role as a member of the body, because it changes how I look at the role of the church in general, as, as far as being that present reality that, that points people to the kingdom of God by being the kingdom of God. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that I think is, is more, you know, profound than I would be able to, you know, ever do justice, (laughs) but, but it's not the point, you know, but just to sort of meditate on that is I think something that I'm going to be doing for a while. Um, and, and I think that as we, we think about how we engage in our own ministries as church members, as pastors, as, uh, people who work in, in, you know, parachurch ministries or who are involved in Bible studies or lead small groups or whatever, you know, or just hanging out with a friend from church, you know, on the weekend, like from top to bottom, I, I just think that the idea that I am the kingdom of God, not I'm getting ready for the kingdom of God or I'm point or I'm, you know, looking towards the kingdom of God, but like, and not because of anything I did, but because of the mercy that God showed his people all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's, it's all, it's all grace. It's all God's doing. And the result is that in Christ, we are able to draw near to the throne of grace and we have a responsibility to draw others near to that throne. And I think that um, I don't want to neglect the real life sort of impact of these things as much fun as it is to discover these connections between bible passages and and sections of scripture um the reason that it's significant is that this is the book that teaches us more than just fun facts you know um, right and i think that it's it's really exciting to get to have these conversations and to to flesh these things out and think about them in community which again is the whole point is the whole point right, <laughs> of our podcast right well, I guess uh, as we close, we'll uh, we'll close with a prayer that um, somehow they always end up applying, even if I <laughs> am not trying to make them apply. So it, this is from the Valley of Vision. It's called the Broken Heart. It says, "Oh Lord, no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in Thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has been often praiseless sound." My best services are filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, let me find a covert in thy appeasing wounds. Though my sins rise to heaven, thy merits soar above them. Though unrighteousness weighs me down to hell, thy righteousness exalts me to thy throne. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in thee plead my acceptance. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice to thy throne of boundless grace. Grant me to hear thy voice assuring me that by thy stripes I am healed, that thou was bruised for my iniquities, that thou hast been made sin for me, that I might be righteous in thee, that my grievous sins, my manifold sins, are all forgiven, buried in the ocean of thy concealing blood. I am guilty but pardoned, lost but saved, wandering but found, sinning but cleansed. Give me perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep me always clinging to thy cross. Flood me every moment with grace. Open to me the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal, 
flowing clear and unsullied though uh, through the wilderness of life. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, an extra thank you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, if you want to hit us up yes. uh, to connect over questions or comments or, or any episode ideas, you can um, definitely please do so on Twitter at Doxology Podcast. You can email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. And we are also on Instagram at Doxology Podcast now, too. So if you no like way, pictures, yeah. I was actually going to talk to you about that. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, in the meantime, please, between now and, and whenever our next episode uh, drops, for whenever you're listening, just um, connect with us. We want to talk, whether it's about something we talked about today or something that we've never even thought of. So uh, don't be shy. <laughs> <laughs>